Our scripture reading today is from the book of 1 Corinthians. We're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Please listen, this is God's word. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise also, also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father, we praise you for your word, that it's true, that it's right. We praise you uh, that we can hear your word gathered today. We do remember all those at home right now who are sick, those who are suffering. Father, I pray your word would come and minister to us. Father, I pray that very soon we could all be gathered back here together to hear your word uh, in person to sing praises to you, and to worship in full. Father, would you come now through the help of your spirit and help me preach your word? Would you help us receive it by faith? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, people of God. So today will likely be a Sunday of firsts for many of us uh, that we're just going to figure out how to navigate together. For some of us today, maybe our first Sunday where we're sick at home, uh, with COVID. Today will be my first Sunday preaching to an almost completely empty sanctuary, which is very strange. Uh, and like Rich said earlier, it's, it's a sad thing. It's a heavy thing that we hope uh, will change very, very soon. Undoubtedly, these are all things that none of us would have chosen uh, this Sunday today. Uh, but this is where the Lord has us uh, today. And so we're going to have to trust that his good purposes are here in our midst, uh, sustaining us, caring for us in the midst of this difficult season. If you're sick today, if you're at home today caring for somebody who is sick, um, please know that Pastor Rich, our session, our elders, our diaconate, uh, myself and my family, we are praying for you. We're praying for you each day that you would have a speedy recovery. We're praying for people who are just really tired because you're caring for the people you love that God would sustain you in this difficult season. Uh, while it's certainly painful that we are not all here able to gather today, I do want you to know that wherever you are today, uh, in your homes, here, wherever you are, I want you to know that we're still one body because of the work of the Spirit. We are still united to the Lord Jesus, um, and we're still a part of each other, right? We're still joined together to Jesus, and we're joined together uh, in his body, wherever we are today, this Sunday. 
So today we're going to be looking at a passage about God's good design for sexuality and the unique dangers of sexual sin. Uh, this is a passage I would not have chosen uh, if I had known that uh, we would be apart today Sunday. If I were a better preacher, I would have been able to pivot in the last 48 hours for sure and preach something maybe um, just more pastoral sensitive, a sermon about sickness or suffering. If Richard Peter were on the calendar for this week, you likely would have gotten something like that. But again, God in his providence has ordained for us today to be a part, and he's ordained for us today um, to hear 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. So I'm just going to trust, along with all of you, that God's going to use his word today to minister to us wherever uh, we are, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. All right, so our passage today comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a passage is going to teach us some very important truths about one of the most fundamental aspects of what it means to be a human being made in God's image. Uh, we're going to talk about God's good design for our sexuality and also the unique power of sexual sin and the power it has to mar the goodness and the beauty of God's design. So let's start by talking about the Corinthian church just a little bit before we jump into what we read. The Corinthian church is a church with an identity crisis, and you can see that from the very beginning of 1 Corinthians. This is a church with an acute case of spiritual amnesia, a church that has forgotten who they are in Jesus. And so what Paul does from the very beginning of 1 Corinthians and all throughout Corinthians is to remind them of who they are over and over and over again. Paul said at the very beginning uh, that the Corinthians, they've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, that they're people now who have been called, uh, they've been called to be saints because they all have one Lord, Jesus Christ. In our passage, we also see that the Corinthians had really specifically rejected and ignored some key truths about the body. What does God say about our bodies? What is his design for our bodies? What we're also going to see in Corinthians is the Corinthian church, very much like the church in our day, is no stranger to a variety of sexual and relational problems uh, that are persistent. At several points in Corinthians already, Paul has brought up this issue of sexual immorality that existed in the Corinthian church. The city of Corinth and really the, the wider Roman world in which it was situated in the first century would have had an attitude towards sexual sin that was far more permissive even than our own culture uh, that we have. In the chapter right before our passage, Paul's mentioned that certain members of the church, specifically uh, a man and his stepmother, they had been caught in this sexual relationship. So Paul confronts the Corinthian church for a kind of sexual morality. He says, look, this is not even tolerated among the pagans. In our passage, Paul specifically mentions this problem of prostitution, of people in the church going uh, to prostitutes. So you can see that the church in Corinth was clearly a church that was sexually broken, and that's very much true of our modern-day church as well. The challenge for our age is that, is that we can hide the sexual sin and the sexual brokenness much easier uh, than it was in Paul's time. Consider just a few of these statistics that tell us some very sobering truths about where we are uh, as a society, as a culture. At least 25% of men and 15% of women will likely have uh, an extramarital affair. Consider that over 28,000 people are viewing pornography every second, and at least 40 million Americans are regularly going to visit a pornographic website on the internet. 
So we live in a culture that's been in a state of relational and sexual crisis for at least half a century, and, and there's no sign that that's going to change for us or slow down in any way. And again, it's important for us to see the crisis is just not out there in the world. It's also in here. So within the walls of the church, our church, every other church. As I'm sure many of you have been doing these last few weeks, I've been following the very tragic story of Ravi Zacharias. You know who that is. You may have heard about him. Over the last several months, the extent of this very uh, once famous prominent Christian leader, the extent of his sins have become more and more public. So if you don't know who Ravi Zacharias is, he was a very influential voice in evangelical circles. He's a, a very prolific writer. He's written 20 books at least. He's a speaker, a Christian apologist, traveled all over the world. He led a very large international ministry that reached millions of people over the course of at least 30 years. He actually passed away last year. But since his death, just increasingly more and more it's come to light that he's had just a long string of extramarital affairs. And even that he was someone who preyed on women sexually to control them and manipulate them to satisfy some. If you've read anything about this story, what's agonizingly clear is that Ravi Zacharias, uh, he kept the bulk of his sexual sin hidden from most people for a very long time. So sexual sin is a widespread problem in the church, right? It stays in the dark, and it stays in the dark way too long. A Barna survey, this is conducted in 2016, it showed that about 41% of young Christian men and boys, people that would say they're professing Christians, ages about 13 to 24, they regularly are going to view pornography. In my own counseling ministry, I do with people, I see just the steady stream of counseling with Christians who increasingly feel trapped and overwhelmed by sexual sin. So our passage is really a very timely word for our day. It's a timely word for our, our culture and also for us in the church. Okay, let's jump in to what we just read a minute or two ago about 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're looking at verses 12 through 20. So right off the bat, verses 12 and 13, what we see is Paul's going to directly respond to some errors, specific errors that the Corinthian church were promoting. What we see in these verses is that the Corinthians seem to be justifying their own sin and a twisted version of God's truth about his design for sexuality. So they're promoting these things in the church, believing these things that were the complete opposite of what the Bible was teaching. So what did they believe? What did the Corinthians believe? Well, the first error that Paul mentions is basically that our bodies don't have any lawful boundaries at all. We see this in this phrase that, that Paul's going to repeat twice. He says, all things are lawful for me. That's Paul probably quoting something the Corinthians have been saying. So it seems that the Corinthians had a view of God's grace that wrongly gave them a license for their sin. We don't know exactly what this looked like for them. It's possible maybe the Corinthians believed that the gospel message that was being preached by Jesus and his apostles had somehow abolished the Old Testament laws and done away with the commandments and regulations that you find in the Ten Commandments maybe or the Levitical laws. And the tricky thing about that is that there really is a kernel of truth in that error. Because we do believe in the coming of Jesus, the Old Testament law has been fulfilled, it's been transformed. 
But it seems like the Corinthians have thrown out the baby with the bathwater, so they no longer believed any of God's commandments regarding sexual purity as something we should still follow and, and apply to our lives. They likely had a view of the law that pitted God's law against his creation instead of seeing God's law as the pathway and the boundaries by which human beings are going to thrive and flourish. So in verse 12, Paul responds by essentially telling them that God's freedom for us doesn't give us a pass to be apathetic about sexual sin. After mentioning the Corinthian teaching that all things are lawful for me, he's going to counter this view by telling them not all things are helpful and that we should not be dominated by anything. So Paul makes it clear there's a distorted view of Christian freedom here that's actually the very opposite of what it promotes. Instead of helping people, it's harming people, as Paul implies in verse 12. Instead of setting people free, it's leading people to a kind of slavery that controls and rules. I think you can read what Paul says in verse 12 about the Corinthian view and see that as a very modern, applicable uh, concept of how our society thinks about sexual freedom, right? That it's promoted for at least the last 60 years in our own country. We can think about ever since the very dawn of the sexual revolution, the 60s and 70s, the idea more and more is very wide, mainstream and widespread that you shouldn't have to restrict yourselves to all the sexual rules that previous generations held to. Instead of sex being confined to marriage, now our society thinks we can be increasingly permissive and that's going to lead people to life. That you can pursue whatever appetites feel good or whatever comes naturally to you. And that doing that's going to free you from the stuffy, oppressive rules and boundaries that previous generations have held to. I was on the radio recently and, and I heard this song. And the DJ announced the title of the song right after it was played and it grabbed my attention. Do you know what the title of the song was? The title was, If It Feels Good, Then It Must Be. If It Feels Good, Then It Must Be. And that is a, a perfect, succinct summary of how the bulk of our fallen culture thinks about sexuality. That there's no moral compass, there's no moral authority that comes with our appetites. Our own pleasure becomes the only authority by which to judge anything that we desire sexually. But all of us have seen, and we've personally experienced the devastation and the wreckage of this mindset that seeks to dismantle God's authoritative design for sex. We can think about how commonplace adultery has become and the divorce that so often follows from it. We can think about the evil, sadistic destruction of millions of unwanted children and the fact that that's viewed by many as just collateral damage, a necessary cost for the benefits of our so-called new sexual freedom. Our cultural view of sexual freedom has given us an entire generation of people who have received their primary sexual education from pornography, an education that for many people leads to the deep pain of addiction. We can think about the normalization of things like homosexuality or transgenderism as just another symptom of a culture that is sexually lost, a culture that has cut itself loose from God's authoritative design so that it's just left adrift in a sea of misery and sin. And so we see this right away. As soon as we read the scriptures, it's obvious that our culture's version of sexual freedom hasn't actually made good on any of the promises that it's made. Instead, it's only delivered the destruction of sin 
and addiction. It's created deep pain and damage to marriages and families. It's plunged people into a world of confusion that seeks to obliterate some of the most basic features of being humans made in God's image. Proverbs warns us that whoever fails to find God's wisdom injures himself, and that all who hate wisdom love death. And so that is precisely what we see all around us, isn't it? That so many of our societal problems, these are self-inflicted wounds that have come from rejecting God's good design for sexuality. And instead, it's come about from embracing this deceptive version, this perverse, twisted version of sexual freedom. The kind of love that our fallen world encourages people to make, it's not a love that leads to life, but it's a deceptive, selfish kind of love that the Bible said will lead us to death. All right, so that brings us to verse 13, where Paul goes on to share another misconception that the Corinthians were having regarding their views of their bodies and sexuality. The second error that he addresses is that our bodies really just don't matter all that much. He states that the Corinthians believe that food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. He goes on to mention how the Corinthians, they they downplay the physical importance of the human body, something that they backed up with this faulty notion that God will one day destroy physical things like food in our bodies so it just doesn't really matter. The context of our passage seems that the idea for the Corinthians was that our sexual appetites were an appetite that we just feel like any other appetite. If you're hungry, then just eat. Again, there's no moral boundaries around these appetites. You're just free to fulfill the appetite in any way that you see fit. And again, you see that is pretty much the view right on, uh, spot on from many secular people in our modern day culture, that sex is an appetite and you're free to indulge it. In any way you choose, uh, consent, right, is the only boundary that we should have. Now, the way a lot of translations do the quotation marks of verse 13 actually makes it easier, I think, to miss the false beliefs that the Corinthian church held. So a number of Bible translations like the ESV, the NIV, they're going to put the quotation marks only around the phrase, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach food. And they have the following phrase, that God will destroy both one and the other, as a statement that Paul is actually making, not the Corinthian church. Now, it's important to know that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in Greek, there were no punctuation marks of any kind. There were no quotation marks. So every translation just has to do their best guess as to try to figure out what is Paul saying and what is Paul actually quoting the Corinthians as saying. But I think it makes a lot more sense to assume that it's the Corinthians' belief, not Paul's, that God's going to destroy both food and the stomach. The Christian story is the one where God is for his creation, not against it. The Christian story is about the inherent goodness of God's creation that's been marred by sin and how God is at work in the world redeeming and restoring physical things. The Bible does not teach us that our glorious future involves God destroying creation so that all our souls can go to heaven. No, the culmination of God's redemption is of the physical world. It's going to include raising up our bodies and renewing the earth in a way that includes not only our souls, but people and places and things like food and body parts. So in the second half of verse 13, Paul gives us his answer to these false beliefs about sexuality that come from the Corinthian church. He tells them the body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
That is a great one-sentence summary, I think, of really the Bible's entire teaching regarding God's design for sexuality. The Bible teaches us in a variety of places that sexual sin doesn't bring us any benefit to our bodies. The sexual sin is actually opposed to the good design of how our bodies were made by God to function. Another aspect of what Paul is saying is that our bodies and everything we do with our bodies, including sexual desires and practice, they're all designed to serve and honor the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what must be a part of what Paul is saying is that God is very much for the thriving and flourishing of our bodies and our sexuality. Now that may sound really obvious, but this is something the church needs to be a lot more vocal about. Our silence or our hesitancy to talk about God's good design for our bodies and sex, it can easily lead to people very subtly communicating something that's the opposite of, of what is true. So we as a church, we must always be clear about the fact that our sexuality, it's a good gift from God that's designed to glorify him and honor him. There is nothing ever inherently dirty or shameful about the gift. It's our sinful flesh. It's our fallen world that drags the gift through the mud. So only God and his truth are pro-sex. Despite appearances and our fallen world, uh, our fallen world actually hates sex. They really do, even as they worship it and constantly promote their own twisted version of it. And so this means that sexual sin is actually hatefully opposed to sex and is anti-sexual behavior, according to God's way of thinking. And of course, the deceitful lie of sexual sin is that it will bring us pleasure to our bodies in a way that makes us think there must be something good here that we're bringing to our body. Our flesh wants us to believe the lie that sin is more for our bodies than God is. And it's time it's difficult to see this clearly because of the pleasure, again, that's wrapped up in sexual sin. But the truth is always this, that sexual sin is self-destructive, that it harms ourselves, it goes against a fundamental way that God designed our bodies to work. And so Paul tells us that our bodies are not meant for the destruction of sexual sin, but instead our bodies are meant to serve the Lord Jesus and to fulfill the purposes he's given us in our sexuality. And so from here, what Paul is going to do for the rest of our passage is going to give us three images regarding who we are as Christians, three truths about our unique identity as people who've been united to God. And these three truths have everything to do with how you think about your body, how we use our body. Paul wants us to see how these truths about the, our identity transform how we practice sexuality, how we understand it. Notice that these three pictures Paul gives us in our passage are all different aspects of a relational connection. So he's going to talk about how we're members of a body. He's going to mention how we're temples inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And then finally, he's going to talk about how we as God's people are slaves that have been transferred to a new owner. So this relational connection is obvious in all three of these images. And that connection is both individual and it's corporate. While each of these pictures are unique, what they all have in common is that they are all about communing with God in this deep, profound way. And all three of these pictures are identity statements reminding us this is who we are as the people of God. So let's look now and let's unpack these three pictures that Paul gives us regarding um, who we are as God's people and what that says about our bodies and our sexuality. 
So the first image Paul gives us comes in the form of this rhetorical question. The first image is that we are all members of Jesus' body. He starts off by asking, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Paul wants the Corinthians to see that the body of the Christian doesn't belong to us in some kind of individual isolation. Our bodies have been grafted into Jesus' body so that we are connected to him, we belong to him. And we are connected to one another corporately. Even today, as we're apart, we're connected all of us together because we are part of Jesus' body. Jesus has one body with many members, as Paul is later going to say in 1 Corinthians 12. So Paul makes it clear that our bodies matter because they've been united to Jesus' body, which is really the ultimate reality that sex is meant to point us toward. Again, our faith is just not about believing certain spiritual truths, but includes the physical realm and what we do with our bodies. And Paul reinforces this truth in verse 14 by mentioning the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, and he promises how he will do the same for us. In Jesus' resurrection, we see in this profound way that the gospel is not an escape from the physical into a spiritual realm. Again, no, it's about God's pledge to renew his creation, his work of transforming very real flesh and blood. So again, Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection tell us that our bodies are really important. That again, our faith is not about saving souls and ignoring our bodies, but it's about how we honor God with our bodies, how God will transform my physical body. For those of you right now who are at home and are sick, I want you to think again this morning about the hope of the resurrection and what that means for us. It means that we're all headed towards this future when we'll get a new body, a body that will never get sick again, it'll never suffer, it'll never break down, it'll never be affected in any way by a disease or a virus. Um, It will be the body you long for. It'll never be a body that produces tears for you, or heartbreak, or disappointment. And I want you to see that Jesus' resurrection has secured that future for you, people of God. Okay, so let's continue on to see what is Paul saying about our bodies being united to Jesus. Paul's going to continue to press this point about our bodies being a part of Jesus' body. Again, by asking the Corinthians rhetorically, verse 15, he says, Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And Paul's response is obvious. It's an emphatic never. So for Paul, union to Jesus is completely incompatible with being united to another in sexual sin. Paul wants to present the reality of sexual sin for what it really is so that we see the spiritual realities that are present in the act of sexual sin. Reality is that evil always wants to hide from us. doesn't want us to see. Just like we would be horrified to see the Lord Jesus united to a prostitute, Paul wants us to see that something no less dramatically wrong is happening when we unite Jesus' body, our own bodies, to another in sexual sin. And it's important in this day and age to, to make it clear this applies to a variety of sexual sin, whether that's physical things that happen or the virtual digital encounters that our technology has enabled us um, to produce. Verses 16 through 18, uh, in those verses, Paul's going to spell the unique power of sexual sin as a way to reinforce 
what he's saying about how being a member of Jesus' body is just incongruent with sexual sin. He's going to ask again rhetorically, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And then Paul quotes a a foundational passage on sexuality that you find at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis by quoting uh, Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. What we see in the scriptures is the scriptures teach throughout that sexual intercourse is so much bigger and it's so much more than what we do with body parts. It's so much more than chemicals that rush through our body in moments of pleasure. The scriptures teach us that sex is designed to be the physical expression of something sacred, something much bigger uh, than the thing itself. When Paul basically says in verse 16 that the Corinthians should know that whoever is joined with the prostitute becomes one body, he must be communicating something bigger than just body parts. I mean, it's not like Paul asks his question in verse 16 because the Corinthians didn't understand the mechanics of how sex worked. No, he wants them to see the union that happens in sex is a spiritual union, a one flesh union that is made to mirror the sacred union between God and his people. Paul will essentially say the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5 when he again quotes the same passage from Genesis 2. Then he says, this mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. And so Paul's saying that when we give ourselves to sexual sin, we are defacing the sacred image that sex is meant to communicate. We are participating in a kind of perverse counterfeit of the spiritual union between God and his people. Men, we must see this. We must see that when we partake of of pornography, we're uniting ourselves to a demonic parody of something that is eternally good, something that is eternally beautiful. We are rejecting our union with Jesus and instead uniting ourselves to something that is spiritually corrosive, something that is diametrically opposed to the union that you were created for. Paul mentions this union in verse 17 when he mentions that he was joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. It's likely here that Paul's referring to our vital connection that we have to Jesus through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, capital S. Because we are united to Jesus, we partake of the same spirit that he does. Throughout the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit referred to as the spirit of Jesus, the same spirit that indwells every single believer. All right, so that brings us to the second image that Paul's going to give us. In verse 19, Paul again, through another rhetorical question, mentions uh, this, another image that, that describes who we are as God's people. He says now that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We're temples of the Holy Spirit. Paul's going to set up this image by exhorting the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality. It goes on to mention the uniquely destructive power of sexual sin, the fact that every sin, he says, is outside the body, but he says the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So Paul wants us to see that we defile the temples of our bodies in a unique way in sexual sin. Now there's obviously lots of ways that lots of sins harm ourselves. So we need to think about this. What is it exactly about sexual sin that makes it particularly damaging? That it's a sin against ourself in this unique way that Paul says. We've already mentioned that sexual sin is unique because of the way it pushes against the fundamental way that God designed our bodies to experience union and communion. 
We sin against our bodies in sexual sin because we're doing the exact opposite of what sex was actually designed for. Instead of partaking of the living picture of God's loving care and communion with his people, sexual sin breaks our communion with God by polluting the temple of our bodies. Sexual sin is unique because of who we are as the people of God. We are not people who belong to ourselves. We are not our own, as Paul says in verse 19. Our bodies are temples that belong to God, temples that have been consecrated to be the very dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. If you read the scriptures, it's obvious that this concept of temple, it's, it's foundational from the very beginning of the Bible. It shows up as early as the Garden of Eden. That's the first temple uh, sanctuary uh, that God designed for his people, the place where God's special presence was meant to dwell. You think about in times of Moses, God gave instructions to Israel on how to build a tabernacle, which was basically a, a portable temple. And then later in King Solomon, Israel has finally a permanent place to worship, a permanent temple where they can enter into God's presence. When you get to this New Testament, the glorious truth we see is that now we, as God's people, are the true temple. We are the fulfillment of everything God has been saying in the Old Testament about the temple and the tabernacle. Peter tells us, uh, all of us, that we are God's people uh, and we are living stones. They're all being assembled together into the spiritual house. People of God, our good, gracious God has mercifully drawn near to us. He's mercifully taken up his residence in us through the Holy Spirit. This means that despite your sins and your many weaknesses, our holy, loving God has pledged to forever dwell with you. And God is in the process of constructing a temple comprised of his people from every tribe, every language, every nation. That's a work that will finally be complete when the Lord Jesus comes again. And so now in the present, we participate in God's work of constructing this glorious temple by resisting and fighting the unique defilement that comes to us through sexual sin. This truth that you individually and we corporately together are God's holy temple, the very dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, this is, should fortify us, should strengthen our souls to persevere in our lifelong war against sexual temptation. So in light of everything Paul has said about our identity as God's people and the specific contours of sexual sin, Paul's going to exhort the Corinthians to flee, to run away, get away from sexual morality. We'll think for a minute or two about what might that practically look like for us as God's church, especially in the midst of a world that is constantly at work promoting and defending the very thing that God says we have to fight, we have to run away from. I've got three things very quickly I want to share about what might that practically look like. Um, before we start, it's really important to see that fleeing is not a passive ascent. I can't just hear this and say, okay, that sounds good. No, fleeing means you have to move. You have to take action of some part. Fleeing means you get out of the building when it's on fire. Or you rightly perceive the threat in the dark alley and you get away. You run and you go get help. Fleeing sin requires us to take evasive action so that we can't just sit uh, around. Um, again, so what might some of the specifics of that look like for us as a church? Well, for some of us, it looks like taking active steps to have some accountability in the places that we're tempted, places like the Internet, 
Some of us need a filter, accountability software on our phones, computers, anything that will help us fight internet pornography. I mean, again, consider this. Our age is the first in, his, in the history of the world that provides people with a portable handheld device that gives you the ability to access a bottomless pit of sexual depravity. Nobody else in the history of the world has, has had access to sexual sin in this way. So fleeing might look like, again, creating some boundaries, some fences around our access to the internet. Parents, we are helping our children flee sexual sin when we are the ones to proactively discuss and talk about and disciple um, with our children what God says about his good design for sexuality. When we are the ones that proactively take the measures to make safeguards in our homes so that there's space between our children and sexual sin, things like pornography. All right, so that's one practical way. Another practical way um, is going to involve some of us needing to just face the truth in our own lives about the damage of sexual sin. And for some of us, we need to get our sin out of the darkness and into the light so that you can finally make progress in fighting and fleeing from it. So that's going to look like ending your foolish commitment to handle things on your own and instead doing something that requires a lot of courage. You just go to somebody else. You go to your pastor. You go to an elder. You go to a Christian friend and say, I I need help. Um, We are always handing enormous power over to our sin when we keep in the dark. But God's work of transformation and restoration, it will begin when you take a step out of the darkness into the light. And you confess your sins to God. And you confess your sins to, to other people who can help you fight and flee. The final way I want us to think about we as, as we as God's church and how we flee sexual morality is for those of us who are married. Uh, for married people, we flee by persevering in the work of cultivating God-honoring, regular sexual activity within our marriages. I've always been amazed when I read the Bible and I read the things it says about sex that I think would be scandalous uh, if we just said it out loud, right, in a public setting in the church. Listen to what the book Proverbs we read. So the father is giving uh, advice to his sons about the dangers of adultery. In the midst of this, he says to his sons, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely, dear, graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That's probably something we don't hear a lot in the church, right? That the best way to resist and fight sexual sin for those of us who are married is to create the kind of marriage where we regularly delight in each other's bodies. I love the fact that the Bible is never bashful in all the places where we are too timid to speak about the importance, the significance of God's good design for our sexuality. Okay, so Paul has told the Corinthians two truths so far about who they are. He's told them that they're members of Jesus' body. He's also said they're temples of the Holy Spirit. Let's quickly now look at the final picture that he gives them regarding who they are as the people of God. The final image that Paul gives us is that we are servants. We are slaves who have been purchased by God and who now belong to him. So Paul's going to say in the very end, verses 19 and 20, he says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 
So the image here in this, this last verse is from the slave market where someone purchases a person from one master and they transfer ownership of that, of that person to someone new. Now, quickly, the important caveats here that need to be said is that Paul's not commenting here on the institution of slavery in the first century Greco-Roman world. And if he were, which he isn't, it's also important to see that the kind of slavery in the first century world wasn't exactly the same thing as the evil institution of race-based chattel slavery that once existed in our own country. It's also helpful to understand that Paul uses the same kind of language in other places, in a variety of places. Uh, specifically a place like Romans chapter 6, where he says that in Christ we have been set free from this cruel slave master of sin, and we've been transferred to now to this ownership of the living God and placed under his authority, under the authority of his gracious love. Paul makes it clear that this transfer of ownership is not about cruelty, and it's not about exploitation, it's life for God's people. Being servants of the living God isn't about oppression but about being placed under the authority of the one who loves us so much that he's willing to send his only son to die and rise again for us so that we'd be liberated from our sin. God has set us free from sin and he's made us children who are enabled to gladly give our lives in the service of his kingdom. And again, that's good news for us. The God at great cost to himself through the shed blood of his beloved son has forever secured our place in his household, in his family. And so the Christian understands that God has claimed his or her own body, and he wants us to use our bodies as part of our rightful service now to God. This entire mindset, again, think about how our culture thinks about this and how completely opposed this is to every message we hear about sex around us and our bodies. You can think about secular uh, culture mantras, right? Slogans like, my body, my choice. Other place in the sexual revolution, especially in the debates regarding homosexuality and gender confusion, it's saying something diametrically opposed to what we see here. The Bible gives us the good news about our bodies, and that is our, we are not the sole masters of our body in some autonomous way, but rather it's, it's Jesus' body, and it's Jesus' choice about what to do with our bodies. He gets the ultimate say about what honors God and what honors our bodies and how they should be used for his glory. The good news is that the creator or redeemer of our bodies has laid claim to them, and he has mercifully revealed to us through nature and through the Bible a divine blueprint for how our bodies function. And that through Jesus' death and resurrection, God has purchased our bodies. He has rescued them from death, and he's now put them under his life-giving authority. People of God, as we begin to close our time together in God's word, I want us, as we finish up, to consider the ways that the Christian story of sex is unique. And I want us to consider the ways that it's a very unique story. And what is it really about? And I want us to see that we as Christians, we just have a story that is so much more compelling than what the world has to offer. A story that we can proclaim to a world that is lost a story that we can proclaim to the sexual brokenness in the midst of our families and in our church. We must embrace for ourselves and proclaim to the world that the world's version of sex is actually very cheap and it's very destructive, it's very hollow. And it's not only wrong and evil and a sin against God, it's devoid of any glory. It's uninspiring. 
It has nothing that is worth sacrificing for. It has nothing that is worth the work of protecting it and promoting it. We as the voice of the church should constantly be proclaiming that the world's version of sex isn't exciting or thrilling in any way whatsoever. Instead, it's a sad, depressing song that celebrates misery, and it's being endlessly played over and over again like a broken record. People of God, fleshly sexuality is all about treating sex as a substance that you use for your own sexual gratification. But God's vision for sex is about getting to participate in something so much more glorious. It's about getting to participate in a foretaste of eternity. God's vision brings two people together within marriage in ways that gratify desires that go far deeper than the craving for bodily pleasure. One flesh union designed by God is but the joy of giving and receiving between husbands and wives within the safety and security of marriage. And one flesh union is about two married people sacrificially creating this good temporary picture of something that is eternally true. Something that will be true when sex and marriage as we know it pass away. How God has drawn near to his people. How he's united us to himself. So the question we have to be constantly asking ourselves and our culture is, what is sex really about? Is it about the glory of communing? Or is it about the emptiness of just consuming? God has given us a piece of his glory in his design for marital sexuality. He's given us a physical symbol of the gospel itself, how God and his people draw near to each other to unite with one another and commune with one another. The world's cheap counterfeit defaces the glory of God's design and makes us settle for simply filling a bodily appetite that is devoid of sacrificial love, devoid of the glory and struggle that comes with a commitment to follow God's design within marriage. Fleshly sexuality is about trying to find a shortcut to glory, but of course it never actually achieves it. It gives us this very seductive lie that we could satisfy a sexual desire by devouring the symbol without ever actually partaking of the reality that the symbol is meant to point us towards. But people of God, the teaching of God's word on sex is that we as God's people are destined for eternal glory. The glory being forever united with God and communing with him in the world as it was made to be in a body uh, that will be resurrected uh, just as it was made to be. People, God, that's a glory worth fighting for. That is a glory worth giving our lives for. Is a glory great enough to stake our lives on. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your word that's true and right. And I do pray, Father, for all of us today uh, as we are apart, that we could find great pleasure and comfort in knowing uh, that the Lord Jesus has come near to us through his spirit and that in a mysterious way, uh, we are still together as we commune with him. Father, we pray for those who are suffering greatly, that you'd ease uh, their suffering, that you'd heal bodies that are sick, and that very soon, Father, you would draw us all back together to this place um, so that we can partake of your good gifts all together. Father, help us see your word as our only hope, as life for our marriages, our families, our friendships, and for our world. We pray to sing in Jesus' name. Amen.